welcome you here this morning and invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we read the chapter in its entirety just a few moments ago, uh, but we are going to read now verses 11 through 14, and that will be, uh, these verses will be the focus of our attention this morning as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 11 and read through to verse 14. In our passage this morning, if you uh, do not have your Bible with you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 1006, 1006 in one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair or uh, in the balcony, wherever you are seated. We are a church blessed with many babies, and we praise God for that. And we praise God for moms who are so eager to come to church that you bring your babies. So thank you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. Blaise Pascal was a famous French mathematician and philosopher, and he once observed, quote, There are only two kinds of men, the righteous who think they are sinners and the sinners who think they are righteous. Let me state that again. It's from Blaise Pascal, quote, There are only two kinds of men, the righteous who think they are sinners, and the sinners who think they are righteous, end of quote. So, Pascal is acknowledging in this statement the biblical truth that it is only when we come to grips with our own personal sin, our sin against God, our sin against one another, that we open ourselves up to the possibility of grace and redemption, and open ourselves up to the possibility of being transformed in such a way that we genuinely seek righteousness. Acknowledgement of sin is absolutely essential to experiencing grace and redemption and transformation. And on the other hand, it is, often those, it is oftentimes those who most fiercely contend for their own righteousness for their own goodness, who are tragically furthest from God, and even at times downright wicked. Jesus illustrates this truth well in His parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Many of you know it. Jesus tells a parable about a man who's a Pharisee, a religious leader, and a tax collector who was kind of representative of the dregs, the evil of society at that time, and they both go to the temple. 
And the Pharisee, when he arrives at the temple, he prays to God and he boasts before the Lord, Lord, I thank you that I attend the temple and I fast and I pray and I give alms and I'm not like this sinful tax collector. And then the tax collector, he approaches and he prays to the Lord. And when he prays, he bows his head and Jesus tells us he beats his chest and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And do you remember how Jesus concluded that parable? Jesus concluded the parable by saying, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other. You see, my friends, forgiveness is one of the most fundamental, one of the most foundational concepts and truths in Christianity. And yes, it is important that we forgive one another. That is an important aspect of the Christian faith. But even more foundational, even more fundamental than our need to forgive one another is the need that each of us possess to acknowledge that we are sinners and to be forgiven before God. In the Bible, this truth is clearly taught from the very beginning, so that if we go back thousands and thousands of years in the pages of Scripture, all the way back to when God initially established His relationship with His people Israel, from the very beginning, this one truth is very clear in the biblical text, that God is the essence of moral perfection, that God is holy, 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 as we sang this morning, that He is sinless, And that God's people, like us, were sinners. They had sinned against God. They had sinned against one another. And if they were to know God, if they were to relate to God, then there must be an accounting for their sin. They must be forgiven so that an unholy and sinful people could know and relate to a holy and sinless God. And so what we find in the pages of the Old Testament is that God appointed priests and He established a sacrificial system so that the people could know and relate to God. And the most important day in this sacrificial system, the most important day of the year in this sacrificial system was the Day of Atonement. The specifics of this day are recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 16. And on this day, the people would gather at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where the people gathered for worship. It was the precursor to what would later become the temple. And as they would gather there, the people to meet with God, they would gather at the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was made up of two primary chambers, the holy place and the most holy place. And the priest throughout the year could enter into the holy place, and they would perform various rituals and ceremonies and so forth. But once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, could enter into the most holy place. And the most holy place was representative of the presence of God. This is where God had specifically promised to dwell with His people and meet with His people. And so on this momentous day, the great high priest would offer sacrifices of bulls and goats. 
He would offer those sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the people. And then he would take some of the blood of those sacrifices and he would enter into the most holy place and sprinkle some of the blood of those sacrifices onto the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of the presence of God. And it was through these priests and it was through these sacrifices that God could at least temporarily relate to a sinful people. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the book of Hebrews, and in particular, the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And we've been seeing how Jesus fulfills and how his his high priestly ministry is even greater than the ministry of the high priest in the Old Covenant. And this morning we will see that not only is Jesus a greater high priest, but he also offers a greater sacrifice. He offers a greater sacrifice than the high priest of the Old Covenant. And by his greater sacrifice, Jesus secures our eternal redemption. He cleanses our guilty consciences. And he enables us to serve the living God. So with that background in mind, I want us this morning to look at the passage that I just, read from, um, I just read a few moments ago. And based on these few verses, I want us to ask and answer five questions regarding Jesus' high priestly ministry. I want us to ask and answer five questions regarding Jesus' high priestly ministry. And here's the five questions. What, when, where, how, and why? So first of all, what? The first question we want to ask regarding Jesus' high priestly ministry is what? So here in verses 11 through 14, there is a lot packed in these few verses. But if we examine them closely, we will notice that the main idea in these verses appears in verse 12. If you look there in chapter 9, verse 12, we read these words, He, that is Jesus, entered once for all, into the holy places. Now, in a very real sense, everything else in these verses functions to support or to further expound upon that one statement, that primary idea. He entered once for all into the holy places. This event defines Jesus's high priestly ministry. And notice what's being said here. Uh, In fact, a great distinction is being made between the high priest of the Old Covenant and the high priestly ministry of Jesus. As mediators between the people and God, the Old Covenant priest would enter into the holy places once a year, right? So the great high priest, he would enter into the holy place once a year, And then he was required to do the same thing the next year, and the next year, and the next year, in perpetuity. But here's the distinction. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. And that phrase, once for all, is used at least four times in the book of Hebrews. And it's used in order to communicate the finality of Jesus' high priestly work. Jesus does a work when he enters into the holy place that finally and forever secures our ability 
to relate to God, to grant us access to God, to worship God. And so this is the what of Jesus' high priestly ministry. What is the essence of his ministry? What is, what is the one thing that Jesus did that is essential to Jesus' high priestly ministry? He entered once for all into the holy places. Now, secondly, when. When. Notice there in verse 11 that we read these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then skip to verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places. So when did Christ enter into the holy places? Verse 11 tells us, when He appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And what are the good things that have come? Well, the good things that have come are in large part the long-awaited promises of the Old Covenant. You see, it's important for us to understand that the Old Covenant, what we were talking about before, where the there were priests and there was a tabernacle and there was uh, sacrifices and so forth. This old covenant, this relationship that God had established with His people centuries ago, it was full of promises. And many of those promises were contained within the tabernacle of the old covenant. They were contained within the priesthood of the Old Covenant. They were contained within the sacrifices of the Old Covenant because all of these offices and systems and structures were never intended to be a permanent and final solution for sin. Rather, they were all types, images, symbols that pointed to something greater. And Christ is the fulfillment of those images. He is the fulfillment of those symbols. In Him and in His redemptive work, all the promises have been and are being realized. In Jesus, the good things have arrived. This is the win of Jesus' high priestly ministry. He accomplished His high priestly ministry when He appeared, when He stepped forward to fulfill the promises of the Old Covenant and to ensure that those promises would become a reality. Third, the where. The where of Jesus' high priestly ministry. Look there in verses 11 and 12 when we read these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places. So where did Jesus enter once for all into the holy places? The author of Hebrews tells us in verse 11, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now, the tabernacle in the Old Covenant was, in fact, a tent. Later on, it would evolve and it would become a temple. But in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a tent. And what the author of Hebrews is acknowledging here is that it was constructed with human hands. But the author of Hebrews repeatedly points out in, his, in this letter that the earthly structure of the tabernacle was a pattern it was a picture of a greater heavenly reality. So if you just go down a few verses in chapter 9, 
uh, probably uh, on the same page. You may need to flip over one page, but in chapter 9, verse 24, verse 24, the author of Hebrews writes these words, for Christ has entered into the holy places, I'm sorry, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so the priest of the Old Covenant, what they would do was when they entered into the holy place or into the most holy place in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, they were entering into a copy, a representation of something that was greater, a copy or representation of heaven and the presence of God. But they could not enter into heaven itself. That was an impossibility because they were human. They were mortal like you and like me. But Jesus, our great high priest, is fully human, and He is fully divine, and He entered into heaven itself, into the very presence of God to account for our sins and to make atonement on our behalf, thereby providing us a way into heaven to know the one true and living God. So, the what of Jesus' high priestly ministry. What is the event that defines Jesus' high priestly ministry? He entered once for all into the holy places. The when of Jesus' high priestly ministry. When did he do this? When he appeared, when he came to fulfill the good promises of the old covenant. The where of Jesus' high priestly ministry. Where did he accomplish this work? Not in a tabernacle made with hands, but in heaven itself, in the very presence of God. And the fourth question, the how of Jesus' high priestly ministry. Now notice this in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. And then notice that the author of Hebrews elaborates on this point further in verses 13 and 14. So look there in verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So how did Jesus enter into, once and for all, the holy places and provide us access to God? Well, you see the answer there in verse 12. He did so by means of His own blood. And of course, this is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross. And what we see here in Jesus' high priestly ministry is not only is Jesus the greater high priest, but He offers a greater sacrifice. He offers Himself as a sacrifice. He's not only the high priest, He is the sacrifice. And He offers His own blood. I remember years ago speaking to a friend of mine who had read through the Bible for the first time. And I asked my friend what they thought after having completed their reading of the Bible. And my friend responded with a little bit of apprehension, but honestly said, I must confess that as I read through the Bible for the first time, it was very disturbing to me. All the blood and all the death of the animals in the Old Testament especially, and 
I just love animals, and all the blood and all the death was very disturbing to me. That provided me with an opportunity to share with my friend that the death of the animals in the Old Testament should, in fact, be disturbing to us. That in reality, that's kind of the point. That before sin entered into the world, all this world knew was life. But the Bible teaches us that sin results in death. And so the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament remind us that our sin results in death. The sinners, those who had committed sin in the Old Testament, the people of God, they deserved to die. And the sacrifices are a reminder of that. And so in one sense, yes, the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament should be disturbing to us because they remind us of the penalty of sin. But on the other hand, the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament are also a reminder to us of the grace of God. That God in His grace and in His mercy provided a temporary substitute for His people so that they might relate to Him. The Old Testament, in fact, is very clear on this point. Very clear in terms of the purpose and the intent of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Speaking of the animal sacrifices and and the way in which they were intended to provide a substitutionary atonement, to be a substitute for the people, God says this in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 11. The Lord declares, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So do you see what the Lord is saying here in Leviticus chapter 14 verse 11? Blood represents life. And therefore the shedding of blood represents death. If a person bleeds out or sheds their blood, their life, then they die. And so the animals functioned as a substitute for the people in this way. The people, because of their sin, deserve to die, but God in His grace and mercy provides a provision so that the animal dies instead of them so that they may not have to die, but so that they may live. The author of Hebrews makes this point succinctly in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Look there, just a few verses down. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But of course, there was a problem in the Old Covenant. There was a problem with the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, they were only temporary and provisional because the blood of animals could not finally atone for the sins of men and women. And the author of Hebrews makes this point explicit in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. So go down just a few more verses. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, the author of Hebrews writes, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so animal sacrifices cannot atone for the sins of a man or a woman. 
Because the soul of a man or a woman is of so much more valuable, value than the life of an animal. As a result, the only one who is worthy, the only one who is able to atone for the sins of men and women is Christ who is both human and also divine. Only He can atone for the sins of men and women. Only He can atone for the sins of all God's people. Only His sacrifice, only His blood is sufficient. The Apostle Peter, speaking of the inestimable value of the blood of the Lord Jesus, states this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, you, speaking to the people of God, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is saying, essentially, you take all the gold, all the silver in this world, if you could accumulate it all together, it would not compare to the value of the blood of the Son of God. Andrew Murray, commenting on this point, writes, quote, It was the life of God that dwelt in Him. That is, it was the life of God that dwelt in Jesus. That life gave His blood, every drop of it, an infinite value. The blood of a man is of more worth than that of a sheep. The blood of a king or a great general is counted of more value than hundreds of common soldiers. The blood of the Son of God. It is in vain that the mind seeks for some expression of its value. All we can say is, it is His own blood, the precious blood of the Son of God. End of quote. And so, my friends, listen, if the death of sheep and bulls and goats disturbs us, how much more should we be disturbed by the death, the crucifixion, the shed blood of the sinless, spotless, eternal, divine, perfect Son of God? What is the value of the blood of sheep? And bulls and goats compared to the value of the blood of the eternal Son of God. And the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus reminds us, it reminds us of the wickedness of our own sin. How deep, how great the wickedness of our own sin must be if in order for that sin to be atoned for, it required the death of the Son of God. And yet, the blood of Christ and the death of Christ is also the thing in which we thrill because it reminds us of the infinite love of God and the incomparable grace of God that God would not only sacrifice the blood of countless sheep and bulls and goats, but would sacrifice the blood of His own Son to redeem us. 
So how? How did Jesus perform his high priestly ministry? How did he enter into the holy places to grant us access to God? He did so by his own blood. Fifth and finally, though, why? The why of Jesus' high priestly ministry. Why did Jesus enter once for all into the holy places? Where our text, there's many things we could say here. But our immediate text reveals at least three reasons why Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. And the three reasons are as follows. He entered into the holy places once for all for the sake of our redemption, for the sake of our conscience, and for the sake of our service. He entered into the holy places once for all for the sake of our redemption. Look there in verse 12. We read, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood. Thus, as a result, securing an eternal redemption. Now, the word to redeem in the Bible means to buy or to purchase. To buy or to purchase at a price or at a ransom. And Jesus, when He was on the earth and during His earthly ministry, stated very clearly that He had come to redeem us, to be our ransom. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's the the language of redemption, to give His life as a ransom for many. Think of someone being kidnapped. Think of someone being taken captive by a captor, and the the captor demands that the ransom price for the captive's release is $100,000 or a million dollars or $10 million. And we see here in our text, though, that, that as we have been taken captive and as Christ has come to redeem us, that the ransom price for our redemption is far greater than any amount of money we could imagine, that the ransom price, as we've already seen earlier, is the precious blood of Christ. And notice that the blood of the Lord Jesus, when He offered His ransom for our redemption, it did not result in a temporary or a partial release Jesus didn't offer His blood as a sacrifice for our sins in the holy places. And then we heard the announcement, well, you'll get nights and weekends. No, there's nothing temporary or partial about the payment that Jesus made. You see, the priest of the old covenant, they were making partial payments. That's all they could make. And therefore, they had to continue to pay They had to continue to pay every day, every week, every month, every year. More sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices. They could not finally make the payment. It was like they were in bondage to a mobster. You know, comes into a town, speaks to the business owners. You're going to have to pay me. I'm going to come by every day, every week, every month. And you're going to have to make payment, but it's never enough. And when we had sinned against the, law, against the Lord, the law demands a payment. And the Old Testament priests, they were making payments every week, every day, every month, but it was never enough. They could never pay enough to satisfy the law. 
But when Jesus offered his precious blood on the cross, you know what he said before he breathed this last? It is finished. Paid in full. Redemption complete, secured forever and for all eternity. No more payments to be made. And oh, my friends, this is why we worship. This is why we sing. This is why we celebrate in glory in a crucified Savior. This is the song of heaven, and we rejoice to sing it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we glory in our eternal redemption purchased by the blood of our great Savior. The second reason why the Lord Jesus entered into the holy places once and for all was for the sake of our conscience. Look there in verses 13 through 14. We read, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, here it is, purify our conscience from dead works. So the Bible teaches us that God has given each one of us a conscience. And and what is our conscience? Well, David Nacelli and J.D. Crawley in their excellent book entitled Conscience define the conscience as follows. They say that our conscience is, quote, your consciousness or your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. So our conscience is our awareness of what we believe to be right or wrong. And our conscience is not perfect. It can be defective. But nonetheless, it is a gift and it is a moral compass for our lives. And the Bible reveals that God has given all of us a conscience. But then Nacelli and Crawley go on to ask a very insightful question. Why do we even care what our conscience says about us. Have you ever considered that? If you heard that a judge was accused of some major crime and then you learned that he was uh, going to adjudicate the case for himself, you would think, what a joke, right? Can you imagine the scene? He assumes the bench and he reads the charges that have been brought against himself and then he steps down from the bench and steps in forward of the bench, and then he begins to defend himself and make a case for why he's not guilty, and then he walks back up to the bench and he declares, not guilty. And you see, there's a similar dynamic as we think about our conscience. Our conscience is it's very private. It's personal. It's our own. Almost nobody knows what's going on in our conscience when we feel accusations. But our conscience oftentimes accuses us. And so why don't we just ignore our conscience? Why don't we just ignore it and move on? And sometimes, no doubt, there are times where people do that. But oftentimes, instead, we give great attention and concern to our consciences, to the verdict of our conscience. Why is that? 
Well, at least in part because the Bible teaches us that our, our conscience, that we know innately, that God has created us in such a way that we know innately that our conscience is representative of something that is outside of ourselves, something or someone outside of ourselves that's greater than us, to which finally one day we will have to give an account. And a guilty conscience can be a terrible thing. A guilty conscience can result in unrest and anxiety and depression. And do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying here in regards to the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant? He says in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13, he says that the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant, they resulted in a, notice the phrase there, in a purification of the flesh. That is, outwardly, externally, they were able to cleanse at the level of making one ceremonially clean so that they could engage in various religious rites and services. But they were absolutely powerless to cleanse inwardly. But Christ, by His sacrifice, doesn't just wash us clean on the outside externally, but He washes and cleanses our hearts so that inwardly He cleanses and quiets the conscience. So that when the law declares guilty, 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 the blood of Christ declares paid in full, and the conscience is clean, and the conscience is quiet. And oh, my friends, is there anything in this life that is of more value than a quiet, clean conscience before the living God? Notice, and we don't have long, we don't have much time to spend on this, but notice that the author says that the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. Here it is from dead works. And it's important that I make this distinction. Understand, my friends, this is the great distinction between Christianity and every other major world religion. Every other major world religion attempts to deal with this issue of sin and essentially says that the way we can be made right before God is if, if we can commit ourselves to working enough, to sacrificing enough, to doing enough good, to to proving to God that our good outweighs our bad. And if we do enough and sacrifice enough, then perhaps, maybe at the end of the day, we can do enough to prove our worth to God, to quiet our conscience, to, to prove to God that we are worthy of His acceptance and His approval. And what does that result in? It results in, like the priest of the Old Testament, endless sacrifices, never ceasing efforts to prove ourselves, a troubled, unsettled conscience, a lack of assurance, a sense that we are not enough, that we've never done enough, because the Bible calls all of that dead works. That's what it all is, dead works. Because we can't save ourselves. 
No matter how much we do, no matter how many good works, no matter how many sacrifices we make, we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that the author of Hebrews is declaring here. God has done the one work that none of us can do by offering His own Son as a sacrifice for our sins and by His blood cleansing our consciences so that we might be made right before God. So Jesus entered into the holy place once and for all by His blood for the sake of our eternal redemption and so that we might have a clean conscience before God. Now finally, He entered into the presence of God into the holy places once and for all for our service, for the sake of our service. Look there in verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works, here it is, to serve the living God. So notice here that through faith in the Lord Jesus and through faith in His blood sacrifice on our behalf, God grants us eternal redemption. God purifies our conscience. But to what end? And notice it there. Did you see it there in verse 14? By the blood of Christ, we are, our consciences are purified from dead works. Here it is. To or with the result that We will serve the living God. So one author has stated it this way, quote, purity, and he's referring to the purity of the conscience, is not the end, but the means of the new life. The end of restored fellowship is energetic service to Him who alone lives and gives life. So it's important to see here That the purpose of God redeeming us and cleansing our conscience is not simply peace of mind. Although that is one of the purposes, that we would have a clean conscience. But it's not simply peace of mind. It's not simply freedom from guilt. It's surely not simply so that we can live an easy, comfortable life. The goal of redemption, the goal of cleansing, the goal of purity through the blood of Christ is for the sake of us worshiping the Lamb with our lives and serving the living God. Now this this is really cool and this is where we'll wrap up. At this point in our passage, basically what's happened is we've come full circle. Because the word here at the end of verse 14 that is translated to serve, to serve the living God, is actually the word latruo. Now, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so the translators are translating from Greek, and this word serve in the original Greek is latruo, and it is especially used in reference to the work and the ministry and the service of priests. So listen to how one Greek dictionary defines the word latruo. Quote, to perform religious rites as a part of worship, end of quote. Another Greek dictionary defines latruo this way, quote, 
to be a servant, to serve, to render religious service and homage, to worship, to offer sacrifices, to present offerings, end of quote. Another Greek dictionary defines Latruo this way, quote, in the New Testament, the word means to render religious service or homage or to worship, end of quote. So do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? The author of Hebrews says in the Old Covenant, there were priests. And the priests and only the priests were able to enter into the holy place. And then there was, a, there was a high priest. And the high priest and only the high priest once a year was able to enter into the most holy place. And when the priest entered into the holy places, they were able to pray and to intercede and to worship and to offer sacrifices. But now, by the work of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and through faith in his blood, all those who are in Christ are able to enter into not a holy place made by hands in the tabernacle, but into heaven itself before the throne of God and to intercede and to pray and to worship. In other words, in Christ, we are all priests by his blood. We have all been washed and cleansed to serve the living God. The Apostle John, worshiping the one who accomplished such a great work, says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the Apostle Peter, speaking to the people of God of this great work that has been done on their behalf, he declares the people of God to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10, He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, oh my friends, do you see that through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been granted access into the very presence of God. If you have not trusted in Him, consider this question. How will you account for your sin before God? How? There is a perfect and eternal sacrifice that has been made if you will trust in Christ and look to Him in faith. And if you have trusted in Him and His blood has washed you clean, then, oh, my friends, know that by His blood you have been qualified to enter into His very presence. And as you do so, worship Him, seek Him, and serve Him with all your heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the great ministry of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Take your word now, Lord, and apply it to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your eternal redemption. We thank you that in Christ we have clean consciences before you. We thank you that in him we have been qualified to serve you, the living God. And it's in his name we pray.